The following message is entitled, The Marks of Superjoy Suffering. This message was given during the evening service on June 19, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. Sermon title tonight is The Marks of Superjoy Suffering. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. It's a very simple topic to really understand. God expects us to have joy when suffering. The context directly would allude to suffering for the faith directly, but certainly would include trials that all of us have as believers in a fallen world. In the introduction tonight, let's talk about when old flames never fail. When old flames never fail. There's an odd flame thing that has kept me up at nights, night after night after night trying to figure out how it happens. How does this happen? I just now, recently this week, figured it out. I figured out how this happened. I finally have relief. I can finally sleep at night. What has been my problem? I've been awake night after night trying to figure out how trick candles keep relighting after you blow them out. This is a great problem for me. I don't understand it. Well, here's the answer, and I'm going to get a little technical. Okay? In regular candles, a burning ember inside the wick forces out the wax smoke. That ember is hot enough to vaporize or melt the wax, but not hot enough to set the wax vapors aflame, so no reigniting occurs. You blow the candle out, that's it. Still got that little glow when you blow that candle out? See that that little orange glow? But the smoke just trails up, nothing happens. The key to a trick candle is to put something in the wick that the ember can ignite, that little glowy after you blow it out, that the ember can ignite after the flame is blown out. And that something is magnesium. The magnesium inside the burning wick and oxygen combine to protect the magnesium, and it's cooled by the liquid wax. Once the flame gets blown out, the ember ignites the the wax-magnesium combination of dust and smoke, And just one spark can give the heat necessary to relight the vapor, and the candle flame appears over and over again. This has answered all my concerns. So go ahead, blow the candle out as often as you want. The flame will keep reigniting until all the magnesium is gone. And if you're persistent, even a trick candle will eventually not reignite if the wick has consistent lacings of magnesium. Sometimes maybe you kept blowing real fast, thinking the constant air will put it out. It doesn't. The only reason a trick candle stops reigniting is the magnesium runs out. It's clear as a bell. Are you happy like I am? Well, all that techno babble is meant to explain how a trick candle can't be blown out. But this I can understand. Magnesium used in those trick candles burns at 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit and is so hot it will burn underwater and vaporize the surrounding water molecules and it'll form a bubble of hydrogen gas in the midst of the water Fire in the midst of the water, astounding. There's only one thing that extinguishes magnesium, and that is something that you have to throw on a magnesium berm to suffocate the oxygen out, and that's sand. little historical note. On March 30th, 1988, there was a tractor-trailer here in Chicago, downtown, causing 200 people to evacuate from two different factories. The trailer was full of 91% pure magnesium. The fire melted the aluminum and steel trailer, Chicago firefighters on a scene could not extinguish the fire, so they let the fire burn through the night so it could burn itself out. 
um, and once it had made its way through all the magnesium. Is magnesium the hottest burning element that exists? Not the hottest artificial element, but by itself as a naturally occurring element, nothing else burns hotter than magnesium with no artificial mixture added. Now, why all this magnesium top? No technobabble here. Write it down. This is simple under the introduction on the lines. Suffering for Christ is a spiritual magnesium burn. Suffering for Christ is a spiritual magnesium burn. Look at our text. Magnesium burn is even alluded to here. and Maybe not magnesium, but fire. Look at verse 6. 1 Peter 1, 6. In this, our salvation, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Now notice verse 7. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. What's being tested? We'll look at this down the road when we get to verse 7. Down the road means down the road. But when we get to it, it says, even though tested by fire, what before that phrase is he referring to? Our faith. Write this down. Hot, fiery trials are meant to reform, test, refine our faith. That's a good thing. This word fire in verse 7 is pronounced poor, like the, the poor you'll always have with you. The Greek pronunciation of the word fire, it refers to extreme hot heat from the sun, lightning hot. So the word fire is referring to extreme hot. So you know what that's telling you. All the sufferings in our life are hot, extremely hot. And the word tested there in verse 7 is a present middle participle. What that means is God is allowing extreme heat to continuously, present tense, which means continuity, continuous. Continuous heat to attack our faith. Now we can write this down if you still have room under the introduction. You can't grow and I can't grow without trials. Okay? Can't grow without trials. We want to. Oh, we do, don't we? Conferences. Memorize those verses. Say praise Jesus 20 times. Always have an on-time bus. Never any problems with neighbors, family, friends, crime. No physical maintenance problems with our houses or our churches. Fans not included. No problems at work. Oh, we, we, we want to grow in ease. Well, what we'll find out in verse 7 is that's impossible. Trials are good. They're a magnesium burn that is extremely difficult to live with, but they do purify us. The end is growth. We can't grow without them. We naturally run from suffering, so God forces it on us. You don't have a choice. God determines the trial. Number one in your notes, the Bible does, does not make light of our white-hot suffering for Christ. Now, what does that mean? Trials are rough. The cure for dealing with trials is not to belittle them or think, oh, that's nothing. Any trial in your life is white hot difficulty. I mean, now if we compared ourselves to Asia Bibi, who was a mother, a Christian mother, and being raped in a prison in 
in Pakistan that we prayed for years ago before she was released, um, we'd say, oh, our trials aren't anything compared to that. Well, we're not comparing our trials to other people's trials. We're comparing our trials to our trials, and our trials are difficult. Okay? The Bible never belittles the, the fire of our trials. That's why that word is used in verse 7. So we don't make light of the suffering and say, oh, we're not suffering that bad like other people, so we shouldn't have any problem. We have problems. Our sufferings are difficult. We can certainly say to God, I know my trial isn't like somebody sitting in a jail in Pakistan for their faith, but I'm still struggling with my trial. And we do. Next in point number one, a true spiritual magnesium burn is suffering for the sake of righteousness. Suffering for the sake of righteousness. 1 Peter 3. This is a long introduction with a short sermon attached to it. So what else is new, you may say? 1 Peter 3.14. But even if we should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are makarismas. Blessed, happy. And do not fear their intimidation. Their intimidation. Their intimidation. Who is thee there? Unbelievers. The world. And do not be what? Troubled. And as we'll see way down the line, the solution for suffering is verse 15. Change the circumstances. Change the spouse. Change of family, change of church, is that the solution of verse 15? Or sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. We're around unbelievers and we're to make a defense in verse 15. We're to be witnesses. This is going to cause us trouble. So even if our suffering is not directly related to giving out the gospel, the suffering is still attacking us in this world to give up our faith or to not have a testimony. Suffering for righteousness. Now in your notes, in, from verse 14 of chapter 3, suffering in the Greek is paschal. You've heard of the paschal lamb at Easter? Good Friday, the paschal, P-A-S-C-H-E-L. That just means suffering. That's what the Greek word means. But let's get literally to what that word paschal means. Write it down. It means to feel heavy emotion. Really, the word is pressure. The idea is pressure is laid upon you. That's what suffering feels like. So the two analogies the Bible used for suffering in your life, and that's any trial you have, it's a feeling of pressure and a feeling of burning. You're burning with the fire, 1 Peter 1.7. You're facing suffering, emotional pressure in this word Paschal. 2 Corinthians 1, turn over there, that's where a word pressure is used. Phlipsis, you know what a phlebometer is? A phlebometer, phlebometer, it's the old name for what? A blood pressure cuff. Phlipsis refers to pressure. Second Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 3, 2 Corinthians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of what? Where do you get comfort? It only comes through God. And the context is in the midst of suffering. Who comforts us in, not by removing, but in all our 
Philippus, Philipsis, affliction, pressure, crushing pressure. That's what that word affliction means. The word affliction is used repeatedly here. Verse 4, twice. Sufferings, verse 5. Verse 6, affliction. Verse 6, sufferings. Verse 7, sufferings. Verse 8, despair. Ex apareo, to be totally at a loss on what to do. That's what despair is. Even the apostle despaired. It can happen to any of us. doesn't make it right. But how many times does comfort you? Go back to verse 3. Once in verse 3. Three times in verse 4. Four times in verse 4. Once in verse 5. Three times in verse 6. Once in verse 7. Do you see the interplay? Suffering's comfort. Suffering's comfort. Suffering's comfort. Why? The only solution to getting through sufferings is the mega joy fest of walking with the Lord. Back to 1 Peter 1. Back to 1 Peter 1. So the Bible describes and does not belittle your trial in your life. Your trial is difficult. My trials are difficult for us. Maybe not for somebody else. It is for me. Different from you. Some can handle some areas of trouble and pressure and fire more than others. But God is the one who manifests these trials into our lives. We know from James 1 that they come. You can't stop suffering. It's going to come your way because God sees the need for suffering for us to grow in faith. Next in your notes, each such pressure tempts believers towards what many call stress. That's the word used in our society today. We're stressed. Stress, right underneath that, stress is a morally neutral word. And our society uses morally neutral words because they don't want to talk about morality. Stress is a morally neutral word used in our society that implies something is kind of foisted upon us. Like a baseball, if I threw a baseball at you and you had to duck like this, you'd say, why did you do that to me, right? Why did you throw a baseball at me? Stress is a baseball being thrown at us. That's what our society says. That's why they use the phrase stressed out. I was stressed out. What does that mean? Somebody made me, made me have stress, right? Stress is not a word for suffering. Stress is the response to suffering. Write that down. Stress is how we respond to suffering. And it's not a biblical word at all. Because being stressed out or somebody made me stressed out, it sounds like it just happens to us like a baseball thrown at us. Like it's not my personal choice. And nothing is further from the truth. Stress doesn't happen. Suffering happens. We're mixed up on this. We think stress just happens and suffering doesn't. It's the opposite. Stress doesn't just happen. Suffering just happens. James 1 says, count on all joy when you encounter various trials or suffering. They encounter you. They hit you. You don't see it coming. Suffering is the baseball that God throws at us. And we can't duck it. We just encounter it. There, we don't have a choice. Pressure, the fire of trials, they attack us. God controls them. The manifold, the varied shapes and sizes and frequency of trials. God is the one who decides that for us. You can't control the suffering. 
The stress is our choice. And in fact, we're going to eliminate that word right now since it's morally neutral. The New Testament word for stress, next in your note sheet, the real word for stress in the Bible is anxiety. That's the biblical term. Philippians 4.6. This is our choice. There's two phrases that are used in our culture that sometimes Christians can partake of. I'm stressed out or I'm having an anxiety attack. Both make us victims, right? This stressed me out. No, it didn't. I'm having an anxiety attack. Something is attacking me and giving me anxiety. No, it doesn't. How do I know? Philippians 4, 6. It's a command. Present middle imperative, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. See that right there? Be anxious for nothing. That's a command. Paul is writing this as he's sitting in a horrific dungeon in a Roman jail, freezing to death, suffering greatly. Did Paul choose all his suffering or was it chosen for him by God? Chosen for him by God. Does he choose to be stressed out? Or blame anxiety on a physical attack? Not when it's a command. So let's eliminate the word stress, anxiety attacks, and replace it in your note sheet. The real word is anxiety, which is the biblical term. And underneath that then, having anxiety is sin. Write that under that phrase, that sentence. Having anxiety is a sin. That's why he says, be not anxious or be anxious for nothing. The word nothing tells us we have no right to be anxious. So stress is anxiety. Stress isn't suffering because not everyone has stress. You could be under the worst of suffering. Even unbelievers can roll with the punches, as they say, because of their personality. It's not automatic that we end up stressed out. It's a choice. But anxiety, that's sin. Next, what does this word mean? It's merimnao, that's the verb form of the noun. From merimna, as your note says. The word anxiety literally means a part as opposed to the whole. What does that mean? A part as opposed to a whole. Um, imagine a pie cut into eight slices. Or pizza. And uh, a part yanked out of the hole. What this word means is the pizza is sitting cut into slices and all eight pieces are expanding and going in opposite directions as they've been cut. Drawn in opposite directions. As your note sheet says, the real word for anxiety is the real idea of anxiety then is drawn in opposite directions. Now what does that mean? This is, we call this emotional chaos. It's a response to suffering and trials. Being pulled apart. From my study of peace versus fear, joy versus depression, worry, um, despair that was used back in the earlier passage we were looking at in 2 Corinthians 1, we're being pulled in opposite directions by our choice. We choose to be anxiety, and it encompasses these ideas. Write them down under drawn in opposite directions. 
confusion, dread, worry, fear, depression, all rolled into one. This is a major sin anxiety. It is a major shutdown sin for believers. You live with confusion, dread, worry, fear, depression. It shuts you down. It becomes like you can't even operate. I can't move. I can't drive. I can't work. I can't sleep. I can't even eat. That's anxiety. Confusion, dread, worry, fear. Confusion, dread, worry, fear, depression. Confusion means my life is chaos. I don't know what God's doing. Dread is it's hopeless. Worry just means something bad is going to happen to me. Fear is terror over my life's circumstance. My life is out of control. And depression means basically I'm cornered. There is no way out. That's why I call it in counseling a shutdown sin. Next, anxiety then does not... Anxiety is a sin because it is a crisis of faith. Next, anxiety is a sin because it is a crisis of faith, not circumstances. How do we know that? Look at verse 6. Again, Philippians 4.6. Anxiety is a crisis of faith, not circumstances. So it wasn't that I was stressed out. The proper response, if I'm, if I'm filled with anxiety from my trial in my life, suffering for Christ or whatever, it's a crisis not of circumstances, it's a crisis of faith. I'm choosing to not trust God in this scenario. Why? Verse 6, be anxious for nothing but contrast in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. In the midst of suffering, that's why he says be anxious for nothing. Anxiety is a response to suffering. He says, go to prayer. And prayer is a manifestation of what? Faith. The prayer can be as simple as help me. See me through this. I'm trusting you. I'm making a choice to not be anxious. The chaos in my life isn't really chaos. You're in control. Thank you. There's the thanksgiving. Thank you in the midst of the suffering. You're doing this for my betterment. So underneath that, anxiety is a sin on the blank lines. Anxiety is a spiritual problem. I've taught this to you for years. I hope you've all gotten it. If you haven't, write this down. You cannot cure a spiritual problem with a physical solution. Please write that down. You cannot cure a spiritual problem with a physical solution. So i got a problem with my spouse, our society says. And we're fighting all the time. Society says, unload that turkey, get another one. Physical solution to a spiritual relational problem. Doesn't work. So they end up serial adulterers and serial divorcees and remarriers, right? Yeah. I hate somebody. Is that a spiritual problem? Yeah, it is. That's a spiritual problem. Joe, don't go like that. <laughs> Okay, that's beginning stages of Bell's palsy. Okay, I understand. So he's not shaking his head now. Okay, so <laughs> I'm just so nasty tonight, aren't I? So now you've got a spiritual problem with me. You may actually hate me. If you hate me, that's a spiritual problem. Right? Would we all agree to that? What does our society say about if, if somebody causes you to be hating them? Stay away from them. You're toxic. Physical solution to a spiritual problem. 
Christians are not to respond this way. By the way, you can reverse that. Okay? A physical problem can't necessarily be solved by a spiritual solution. What does that mean? If you have a heart attack, you may need surgery. Right? Now we can, I said may, because we can pray for healing. So it's not an absolute in that direction. But always, a spiritual problem cannot be solved by a physical solution. But many times, a physical solution cannot be solved by a spiritual problem, but we still pray. Stress or anxiety is a spiritual problem every single time. It is not related to your circumstances or mine, but our society does this time and time again. Christians can even do this. I'm stressed out, morally neutral. I have anxiety over the community I live in, move to another one. Towards the neighbors I have, move to another block. I'm stressed out by crime, go to an area where there's no crime. I don't like my church, move away. Physical solutions to spiritual problems never work. It's impossible. Next in your note sheet. Suffering does not cause anxiety. That's just what the Bible teaches. Suffering doesn't cause anxiety. Doesn't cause depression, fear, or worry. Suffering pressure can only tempt us to be anxious. Tempt us. And there's a lot of things that tempt us. We're tempted to murder. Do we have to murder then? Every one of us has been tempted to murder. Did you know that? Because Christ said if you hate somebody, you want to murder them in your heart, right? Okay. I can't, officer couldn't help it. I hated the person, so I murdered him. I was murdered out. Stressed out over here, murdered out over here. I couldn't help myself. It just hit me like a baseball. I pulled my knife and I stabbed him. Debt. Is debt a spiritual problem? Could be. It could be if you're impoverished, God has allowed you to be in the poorhouse, you're desperately trying to make money. But most times in this society, debt is a spiritual problem. And it's a problem of gratuitous lust and greed. Spend more than I have because I want. So how do you solve a spiritual, gratuitous, greedy, got to have everything, don't care about what I spend or blow, it's only money? It's a spiritual problem. What do Christians or unbelievers do with a spiritual problem of gratuitous debt? Get another job. Get out the four credit cards. Increase the debt. Ignore. Enjoy. What's the solution for gratuitous debt? Self-control. Fruit of the Spirit. And so it goes. So suffering issues in our lives are a spiritual problem because they tempt us to sin. Therefore, we need a spiritual solution. Now, with that being said, number two on the backside, to finish this long introduction with a short sermon attached, Number two, the Lord doesn't expect hot burning trials to make us feel good. We feel the pressure. We feel the burn. Your work or in a relational issue that's a mess. You're battling with loneliness as a single. Spiritual problem, by the way, not location problem. Loneliness as a single is solved by getting married. That's a physical solution to a spiritual problem, is it not? Being alone is not a spiritual problem. Loneliness is. Garden of Eden did not give, God did not give uh, Eve to Adam because he was lonely. That meant in perfection, his creation was inadequate. It doesn't say that in the Hebrew. 
He said it's not good to be alone. And there's a world of a difference because God wanted a partner to fulfill their will together. But that's not axiomatic for everyone because the Apostle Paul was in God's will as being single. And he even said in 1 Corinthians 7, it is good if anyone can remain such as I with the gift of singlehood. And how do you know if you have the gift of singlehood? Boy, I've gone way off the field, haven't I? <laughs> I'll tell you some other time. The secret to knowing if you have the gift of singlehood. And it is not, oh, I'm single. That's how I know I have the gift of singlehood. No, that's not it. My point here, folks, is trials are rough. Being single isn't easy. Being married isn't easy. You don't solve spiritual problems with physical solutions. We're so messed up on this. So messed up. i got to find a physical way out on this. No. Solution is spiritual. Pressure is not stress. This is where we get confused. Trials create pressure and burn like fire. This is not stress. If someone screams and yells at you, oh, that's nice. No, that hurts. Takes my breath away. How, do you, how dare you scream and yell at me? What's the matter with you? Slander at Walmart or wherever. It hurts. Paul's rotting in jail. He's freezing to death. He tells Timothy, bring me my cloak. <laughs> this feels great. I'm freezing to death 50 feet below ground, Paul is saying. That's ridiculous. They're burning. They're fire. They cause pressure. They can take your breath away. They tempt you to give up. I'm tempted right now. This trial's terrible. I'm tempted. I'm tempted to be in chaos. Why are you doing this, God? What's going on? Stop. Stop. Repent. No. This pressure sitting on my chest from this trial. This is bad, God. This is bad what's going on in my life. Physical, relational, work, financials, location, whatever it is. This is bad, God. I'm having a hard time with this. I'm turning to you. This is fire. It's burning my skin spiritually. Help me. Help me. I turn to you. You're the God who is in control. The steps of a righteous one are ordained by the Lord. I'm affirming truth in the midst of the pressure and fire. Stress is not anxiety. Stress is not suffering. Stress or anxiety is a response to suffering. Please write that under number two. Do not confuse the pressure and the hurt of trials with failing with the trial. Separate out the hurt and the horror of the trial from anxiety. They are not the same. There's a verse somewhere in the Bible. I don't know where it is, but I do know it's between Genesis and Revelation. So there you go. It talks about having joy in the midst of grief. We can be crying over a trial. What's been done to me is terrible. Terrible, God. But you don't want to then say this. I can't take it anymore. Now you're anxiety-filled. Now it's God's fault. You've done this to me. What's the point of praying? I'm in chaos. No. Go back to your friend. As the burn, the magnesium burn, is ripping into you from this horrible trial, you turn to God, God help me, God help me. Strengthen my faith. You're in control, affirming truth. This is for my good. You're testing my faith. You're wanting me to grow. I need this to grow. Nobody who walks down that prayer path is going to have anxiety. None. Such prayers are super joy sand thrown on the suffocating feelings of trials. Such prayers are super joy sand thrown on the magnesium burning, pressure ridden 
trials of life. Are we supposed to have a smile on our face if we have to go to work or meet somebody this week or go to the doctor and face another ad infinitum test? Are we supposed to smile and say, I love this pain? I can't wait for the suffering at work. I can't wait to go to the hospital and get more needles stuck in me. This is so fun. See, I'm, I'm trusting you, Jesus. That's confusing the agony of suffering with the sinful response of anxiety. If you pound my finger with a hammer right now on this podium, I'm going to scream in pain. Oh, oh, oh. But I'm not going to go like this. Where are you, God, in this pain? Do you see the difference between anxiety and pain? You'll never get rid of pain in trials. It will always be there. I mean, why would they be trials if they didn't hurt us? Mentally, physically, relationally, financially, emotionally. They attack, they attack, they attack. You see that in First Peter 1 and 7 again? You see that? The fire? Go back there, First Peter 1 7, that we'll see way down the line. First Peter 1 7. It's a proof of your faith, even though continuously refined by fire. Verse 7, 1 Peter 1 7. Will result in praise and glory. Okay, so I need a quick test to know if I'm failing on anxiety or just hurting from a trial. Can you give me, John, a quick test? I'm confused at times between the grief and agony over my suffering with whether that means I'm sinning the sin of anxiety. Here we go. It's the end of verse 7. If in the middle of the hurt and pain from your suffering, you are giving praise to God for it and mean it, then you're only hurting from the suffering. You are not sinning the sin of anxiety. Remember, the sin of anxiety is hopelessness, dread. I can't do this anymore. Where are you, God? Why have you abandoned me? I'm not praying. What good does it do? That's anxiety. Pound my finger, I will feel pain. But my response of anxiety to that hammer blow to my finger is not automatic. The pain in my finger that's crushed does not mean I'm going to sin against God automatically. This is a choice. This, I praise God for the pain. The anxiety is God has abandoned me. I no longer have faith. That's why chaos is part of the horrific dispersal of anxiety. Chaos. God is a God who is not an author of chaos or confusion. Satan is. It is being satanic to think that my life is in chaos because somebody pounded my finger continuously. So there you go. And that brings us back to Philippians 1.6. And the reason I built this in to the sermon earlier before I went on vacation is because God wants the suffering. He is going to have a suffering. You can't outrun it. What he wants is faith in the midst of suffering. Still feeling the pain. You don't have to look forward this week to going to jail because you never paid your taxes. That's a spiritual problem you should be dealing with. Or whatever the trial may be this week. Facing a surgery. Battling with some horrible drug that I have to take that is causing wreaking havoc with my body and feeling horrible. That's not sin. That's somebody pounding us. God allowing a pounding, suffering trial with the body, with money, with jobs, with relationships. We're being pounded. Are we victims? Yes, we're victims to suffering on this planet. We walk through this world with Christ and we're going to face suffering. God is the one who 
victimizes us under control. And why is he doing that? To break us down. I don't feel I'm trusting God. Irrelevant. It's irrelevant whether you feel like you're trusting God. Affirm truth. What if you were to say to somebody, I didn't feel like witnessing today, but I did anyways. Which would God honor? Not your feelings, your actions. You force yourself into prayer. I'm not looking forward to this week. I'm not. It's pressure right on my chest, but I am resting in you that this is good for me and it is for your glory. And the end of verse 7, I'm giving you the praise and the honor for this because you meant it for good, though Satan in this world means it for evil. Which means we have to learn how to endure. Endurance means to remain under the suffering. Instead of looking for an escape valve, we have to learn how to endure. And that's coming next in your note sheet. Christian trials, mark number one of the four marks we're looking at is they're temporary. Temporary means option number two, that they're going to be in your life and this life is temporary. Which means when, Paul, when Peter says in 1 Peter 1.6 that you'll only suffer for a little while, He's referring to the little while of your entire life. Okay? So you're going to suffer one way or another for the rest of your life here on this planet. You're in a jail of suffering and you're never going to get out of it. You can move. You can break off relationships. You can spend yourself into oblivion with money. You can bury yourself in lies, deception, um, entertainment, try to escape, take sleeping pills, take antidepressants. You can do all you want. You're not going to get away from suffering. Suffering is your middle name as a believer. You yield to it in thankfulness. Because without that suffering, we can't grow. We are sinning horrible monsters. And unless God tries us, we'll never depend on him. He knows us better than we know ourselves. So we need to yield to endurance. I am now resting on the fact that I will always be suffering as a Christian in this life. So we need to know how to endure, and that's under mark number one. I've given you a passage we'll go to next Sunday night, 1 Corinthians 10.13. One I've taught before, I'm going to teach it again. I haven't taught it for about five to ten years. And we need to understand what it means to endure temptation. And does temptation mean sin, or does it mean trial? So we need to learn that. You say, um, John, the one problem I have with this entire series on suffering with joy is this. I I'm not suffering. I suppose that's theoretically possible. I, I, I don't have any suffering. Life's pretty good for me. I mean, you know, I, I can't really think of anything bad going on in my life. I got news for you. Since suffering is one of the eight wills of God for a believer, if you're not suffering with trials that are directly attacking your life, your testimony, and your trust in God, you're not saved. So do we want suffering in our lives? But I don't like this suffering. Couldn't he give me that suffering instead? Why this? I can't handle this suffering. I want one I can handle. And it's not suffering. He nails us in the areas that we can't handle. Why do we need him? If it's a trial that I can handle. Right? I feel so vulnerable. 
I don't know what to do. Exactly, that's what the trial is meant to do. Break us so that we get on our knees up to him. And he promises in his word that if you do that, cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. He directs your circumstances. Don't try to direct your own. Trust the Lord as a dumb sheep. Turn to the shepherd. He's got the rod. He's pulling you in the direction he wants. Rest in him. Everything is in control. We don't need to fix it ourselves. And the reason it's in control is because I have faith to believe that he loved me enough to die for me on the cross. And if he gave his life for me, then he hasn't abandoned me in the midst of my difficulties. I can't, God. You can. I won't. I'm a rebel at heart. You will. Take us, dear Father, and fix us so that we don't try to solve our trials with a physical solution. We repent daily of our anxieties. They are our fault. And we cling to you in prayer, trusting you as the faithful Savior who went all the way on the cross for us when we were hell-bound sinners. If you cared for us, Lord, enough to die for us when we were your enemy, how evil it is for me as your child to think you've abandoned me now that I'm your friend. As our perfect friend, you will never abandon us, never forsake us, control every step, and we don't even have to make ourselves joyful, Lord. We can't even do that. We just have to ask, pray, endure under, wait for you. And you will honor such faith with the grace empowerment of super mega joy while we continue to suffer for your glory, for your honor. Thank you, Lord. Amen.